Hi, everybody, and welcome to the uh, Young People Ask It Basket Workshop. My name is Anita. I'm a compulsive overeater and sugar addict, and your moderator for this meeting. Please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Before we get started, we ask that all cell phones and other electronic devices be turned off. To protect our anonymity, no photo photograph, photography or visual recording are allowed. The opinions expressed here today are those of individual OA members and do not represent Region 2 or Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. An Ask It Basket is being circulated for the questions and answers portion of this meeting. And this meeting is being taped, and if you enjoy this workshop, um, and we encourage you to stop by the tape table right outside here uh, to order copies of the workshop or any other meeting. They're available on CD or as an electronic MP3 download. The format for this meeting is as follows. Two speakers will share for 25 minutes each, followed by 25 minutes of questions and answers. The topics for this session is young people. It's never too early. And our first speaker is Kate, and our second speaker is Dan. Hey guys, it's kind of a small meeting. Um, I'm Kate, compulsive overeater and restrictor. I don't normally include that in my introduction, but I think it's probably important at this point because I've realized more than ever before that that part of the disease for me is just as strong as any kind of compulsive overeating tendencies. Um, I don't know if this is standard. Um, I know that people do this at meetings, but I'm going to just go ahead and show you guys a picture. That's a before picture. And I have to also say that I've been about 15 to 20 pounds thinner than I am right now. Um, which is, I'll get to, was a part of my disease and still is. Um, I'll just loosely follow the structure of what standard meetings are, which is what it was like, uh, what happened and what it's like now. Um, you know, I've, I just have to speak from the heart. I, I've always been a person for as long as I can remember turning to food and not really knowing why. Um, not understanding the meaning behind my compulsion and really feeling like in fits of um, compulsive tendencies around the food, feeling like I was a third party watching myself act out and not having any control over my behavior. Um, which isn't really surprising to me because I hear a lot of times drug addicts um, speak about how they feel similar in situations where they're acting out on their drug. Um, so as a young child, I was pretty normal as a young kid, but I, at a young age, I started to gain weight and I became, I became very overweight um, as a young teen and through my teen years. 
and didn't really think much of it, was pretty, only really started to notice that there was something wrong with my behavior um, when I started to get into high school. And um, what happened for me was that I spent so many years um, being heavy. And at one point in my high school, I think it was about sophomore year in high school, I one of my many diets, um, which I was on and off, you know, I was on and off a diet since I was a young kid, probably like just maybe early middle school. Um, this one was successful, and I, I ended up losing, I lost like 40 to 50 pounds, and that just completely spiraled me into the direction of finding another thing to work on and really kind of get right and, um, you know, that kind of black and white thinking of, um, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be all this way or it's going to be the other way. And my whole time with food, because um, it really is like a relationship um, that I haven't really worked on being a healthy one. Um, has been either restricting myself and eating barely anything at all or completely binging. And so I still say today that most of program for me comes down to balance. And just like so much of my life comes down to balance because just like I act out with the food, which is just a symptom, um, you know, there's other areas of my life that reflect the same kind of behaviors and I can use anything compulsively. Um, and so I do have a tendency to want to do all or nothing. And uh, when I was in high school and I'd lost all this weight, like I said, I I really kind of took it and ran. And I was up and down um, with my weight throughout high school, never really being able to stop eating because I liked food too much. Um, so I never really would qualify as being an anorexic um, because I did eat enough um, to stay reasonably healthy. But my lowest weight, my top weight in the picture is 215, and my lowest weight, um, you know, I, I wasn't weighing myself at that time, but I'm predicting that it was about 15 to 20 pounds lighter than I am now. Um, and when I came into program, I have to say that I was at that, um, close to that smaller weight. And that's because what brought me into program is because I was compulsively exercising uh, for about two hours a day. And um, I started to realize that I couldn't keep it up because my obsession with the food was getting so strong that the amount of exercise I was doing couldn't keep up with the amount of food I was eating. And so I still say today that it was only a matter of time before I would have started to act out on bulimic um, in terms of purging and, you know, vomiting. It was only a matter of time, um, I think, before I would have started to practice that. I never did, um, thank God. But it really, um, one of my first meetings, I, I sat at the meeting and I heard a young speaker actually was a young meeting, and I heard a speaker talk about how she used to spit. Um, 
where she, you know, chews up food and then she she spits it out so she doesn't swallow it. And I thought that was a great idea. So that just shows my uh, <laughs> my level of health at that time. So um, I spent a, a considerable amount of time being lighter, and I started to have physical repercussions because of being a little bit on the lighter side. I think not because I was below any kind of standard on like the BMI, um, but I it really wasn't natural looking for my structure. Um, you know, and I'm still finding that balance. I felt like when I was asked to speak at the meeting today, there's that side of me that feels like, but I, I don't have it all together. I don't have everything perfect right now. And, um, and yet again, like I have to like sit and realize that it's not about perfection. Um, I don't have this thing mastered. I'm only, I'm only able to share what has worked for me. And what I've found, you know, I've been almost in program for three years in August. And, you know, I just, I just had probably the roughest patch that I've ever had in recovery. And that was after having that amount of time in recovery. And, you know, I've, I've had to experience different things. Um, for example, one of the things that I, that I did when I had a rough patch was that I took back sugar. And I tried that out because I felt like my, my anorexic and my restricting tendencies were one in which if I restrict too much in terms of food items or food ingredients, that can also make my mind crazy and can make my mind obsess about those items and those ingredients. So whether or not that's just a justification to kind of act out or whether or not that's reasonably valid, I, I you know, I definitely had like a little love affair with, with the, the sugar. And, you know, within the past month or so, I had to sit down and, yet, you know, again, realize that, you know, yes, I have problems with restricting, um, but I know for a fact now that just my experience has been that there are certainly certain behaviors and certain things that I eat that make me crazy. Um, and, you know, it's not about the food. You know, they always say it's, it's not about the food, but it's all about the food. It's not about that food item, really. But if that helps me stay more sane and it helps my recovery, then I have to do what I have to do to make it, to make this, this work for myself. So, um, when I had taken back the sugar, I, you know, I was slipping and sliding and, you know, behaviors, really bad behaviors were increasing um, by the day. And so, you know, I've, I've certainly experimented um, and had to find out what works for me, but I could talk about food and I can talk about what I do um, in terms of what I specifically eat, but that's important, but at the end of the day, I think ultimately, I've I've come to find that there's a few things that are so paramount in my recovery, and you know, part of that is at the end of the day, it's about letting go to God. Like I just I have to go back to that step over and over and just realize how unbelievably 
important that ultimately is at the end of the day just giving it over to God because you know I'm the kind of person that a lot of my eating came out of feeling like unless I did specific things unless I looked a certain way um, I was not going to be okay like I was not going to survive I was not going to be loved. I was not going to be accepted in this world. I don't know where that came from. And I think that I kind of have somewhat let go of where that could have come from because um, that doesn't make it go away. But the more and more that I practice the next right action, the more and more those compulsions diminish. Um, I remember sitting in a psychology class in college and they were talking about how if a drug addict stops taking their drug that, you know, there's almost like your neuro pathways have to re, you have to dig out a new pathway um, because you're practicing a different reaction, a different way to um, what you normally have done. And, um, I often think about that in terms of my eating behaviors because I can't, you know, stress enough. I say to my, my sponsees all the time, it's, it feels so painful and so hard in those moments when you're so used to turning to the food, um, whether it be binging, whether it be restricting, in moments when you don't want to deal with what's in front of you. Um, but every single time that I have just done it um, and and been scared while doing it, the next time it's ten times easier. Um, like that is just so true for me. Um, to the point where it starts to almost, all my little behaviors go away completely. And because most of my life has been me making my social plans around the food rather than making the food plans around social, my social life, which is the way that I think it should be. Um, and I've had to get out of my comfort zone and experience being uncomfortable. And that's really what it's about. I, I mean, I just, I can't, um, and, I mean, none of this material is original. This is all just, you know, me hearing it from other people, trying it myself, and just some of it's just discovering it on my own and having that take a long time. I, I think that I just did not learn how to deal with my feelings. I don't know how to constructively deal with my feelings. I don't know how to look at a problem head on and just be like, all right, I'm ready. Um, and so every single experience that I have where I just do it anyway gives me that confidence that I did not develop when I was younger and makes me trust more in my higher power. I mean, it's, it's so much about trust because I... I just don't trust myself, and I don't, like I said before, I don't trust that I'm going to be okay in this world. That is my, that is my fear, disease-based place. Um, that's the little kid inside of me that is straight up, like, crying in the corner and doesn't know what to do to make everything go away. And... You know, 
how fitting that our disease is so um, so much a disease of isolation because I, I really do in those states where I'm feeling uncomfortable and feeling like I have a problem still many times will immediately revert to that feeling of needing to check out, go hide, like figuratively speaking, and sometimes literally, um, and just really not have to deal with it. Um, but each experience that I've had where I've stepped out of that place and done it anyway, I mean, it's it really it's like learning. It's like learning how to walk and learning how to talk and how to behave like an adult. And it's um, I'm 26 years old. Um, there's a lot of things that I think that I've been a late developer, a late bloomer, on in terms of feelings. And so um, it's about feeling that, and not even just recognizing my feelings, but really feeling it because. I was always the kind of person that could think my feelings. Like, I can tell you exactly how I feel. I can say I'm mad at you. But you would never see, when I tell you I'm upset, you would never see me cry. Um, that would be way too vulnerable. I mean, that's that's me sending an invitation to you um, saying, hey, do you want to accept me right now? Do you want to be okay with my behavior? Do you want to love me anyway? Um, and I've discovered that so many of those fears are irrational. Um, that is my disease um, at its best. And so um, I could say so much more about that. Um, I think that it's also important to add, too, that kind of along with the feeling stuff, a lot of my share is probably going to be about the feelings because that really is what it is what the disease kind of developed out of is my inability to manage that. But um, a lot of my behavior too has been, or my thoughts in my head have been around, because I think that you won't accept me, it's because I have a fundamental fear um, and belief that um, I'm not good enough. Makes sense, right? I mean, I. Um, they, they go hand in hand. And I think that my MO is whatever emotion that I have, um, I need to get rid of it. Um, if I have a negative emotion, if I'm angry, if I'm scared, if I'm, if I'm upset, um, that's not right to be feeling that. You gotta get over that. You gotta like cut that out. Um, just, just stop it and get yourself together. Um, that's my head, and I'm sure you guys can relate, <laughs> as to, you know, I'm sure most people can relate. And I discovered that, um, you know, just by embracing that stuff and knowing that it's okay to be feeling whatever I'm feeling, like it doesn't matter if it's irrational, that it's okay. Um, you can handle it appropriately by responding a certain way, your action can be different, but I can feel that and it's okay. I'm not a bad person. Um, because kind of like how the saying goes, every time I resist that stuff, it persists. And so me blocking those emotions out just made them grow more. And so um, 
that again has been a huge thing for recovery. I I probably should also say that um, the things that I do for program, I have to. I mean, I have to work it. I've 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 experienced that when I get because I'm a, I'm kind of like that um, in the book they talk about the alcoholic that forgets he's an alcoholic. That is just. I mean, that is just. I don't. When I'm out with friends and they're and they like all want to go to Denny's, you know, at like at like three in the morning, which is like what you know, people in their 20s do, and that's, like, okay. Um, I like to frolic along with them and believe that this is, like, a behavior that is totally, um, to be eating at 3 in the morning is totally okay for me to do, and that that's, um, that's all right. I've just kind of convinced myself that that's, that's not okay. And I've experienced enough mistakes and enough slipping to, to know that, I really have to be at a place where I can check in with myself and I can check in with God um, at any time in the day um, and know that I'm not living in a fantasy land um, because that's, again, where my disease takes me. It's like thinking about all these um, someday kind of um, ideas in my head, which I did as a kid, and not actually taking action myself. get out of that place and just kind of center myself and feel the presence of my higher power. And um, a lot of my higher power is my intuition for me. That is just flat out that little voice inside of me that knows exactly what I should be doing. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm a lot of times I'm not even doing that. Um, sometimes it is, I decide to ignore that little voice. Um, but that's mostly God to me because I, I know what's right most of the time. I, I feel what feels right, and it's just whether or not I decide to take action on that. Um, so I'll wrap up. Um, but I wanted to finish my thoughts on the, on the alcoholic who forgets. Um, I have to stay centered, and I have to say, I have to just work it. I mean, if I don't. I've gone through phases where I don't go to meetings and I don't um, do this or that. And it's not going to change. It's not like I'm just going to transform into a person that is just absent forever without having to do anything. And so I, uh, it's important for me to have, like, a set minimum of things that I do. And that's, you know, going to three meetings a week, making sure that I sponsor people. Sponsoring is probably one of the most beneficial things for, for a program for me. Um, checking in with my food. I used to hate that, but it really, it helps, even though I don't, I don't want to think it does. Um, <laughs> um, writing on a regular basis. I'm not too good at meditation. I still need to work on that. But, um, you know, just working it. Whatever works for everyone. It doesn't, you know, it's not all the same for everyone, but we have to put in the footwork or else it doesn't. I mean, that's been my experience. So, um, and staying connected to other people, to myself and to God. So that's all. Thank you so much. Hi, my name is Dan. And I'm a compulsive overeater. 
hey, um, so I guess the first thing that I thought when um, when I saw that the topic of this meeting was it's never too early was that I never felt that as a young person. I actually felt coming into OA like I was too late. Like, in fact, I was too far gone. I was too far over the edge, and I wasn't sure that I could stop compulsively overeating and stop doing what I did. My manifestation of the disease was chewing food and spitting it out. Um, and, you know, I think that one of the things that I've had to remember uh, oftentimes is that it's both never too early and never too late. I am exactly where I need to be right now. And that's something that my sponsor actually said to me about a year ago. And I said to me numerous times since then. Um, I guess my story is that I grew up with uh, a very abusive stepfather who also happened to be uh, an award-winning and one of the world's foremost psychiatrists for anorexia and bulimia. And um, and I remember when I was 14 years old, my last my last day living at home, uh, when I was baking cookies with my little sister, and uh, my stepfather asked me to leave the kitchen, and I wanted to wait till the cookies were done. And um, I remember him spitting on my face and watching watching the spit kind of fall down my face, and and leaving and leaving that house. And right about that same time, I started wrestling. And um, and very quickly, probably because I had a lot of anger inside at that point, I became a very good wrestler. And I remember on, uh, I, I think it was about a week before the season started, I stepped on the scale and I weighed 138 pounds. And my coach looked at me and he said, um, you would be a great varsity 112 pounder. And I didn't know how to lose 26 pounds in a little more than a month before the season started. And so I did it in some pretty crazy ways, uh, which is I ate the lightest food possible, like as far as weight is concerned, the lightest food. So food with the least amount of water. And um, But it was very high in calories, and I just didn't drink water. And so I would work out for five days before, before a... Um, a tournament, uh, lose 15 pounds for that tournament by not drinking any water for those four or five days before the tournament. And eventually I got to a place where um, where I was just dreadfully thirsty. <laughs> and, um, and I remember putting my mouth underneath a spigot of water and feeling the water in my mouth and saying to myself, well, for at least this amount of time I can trick myself into being hydrated. And um, and uh, that soon kind of cascaded into putting chocolate into my mouth. And um, I knew that I couldn't eat the chocolate because I needed to need to make weight for, for a tournament, so I spit the chocolate out. And I soon realized that I had discovered the coolest eating disorder ever because it didn't have the health problems of bulimia, and, um, and it wasn't really anorexia because I could... Um, I could eat anything I wanted. I just didn't have to swallow it. And I told myself that first wrestling season that um, that, that was just something I was going to do to get through the season, to you know make my weight at various tournaments, and then I would be back to normal afterward. 
And after the season ended, I kept doing it. And uh, over the next couple of years, um, you know, that that manifestation of overeating completely took over my life. When I think back to, for instance, college, um, I don't remember a meal in college that I didn't pack up food during that meal and leave my friends wherever they were and go back to my room and shut my door and um, and chew food up and spit it out into into Coke cans or, you know, whatever else was around. Um, and I think that the thing that was probably most alarming that got me to be most present with this disease was that even though I had chosen a manifestation of overeating that supposedly has no health consequences, I started suffering numerous health consequences. Um, I, I started going blind randomly. Uh, I became epileptic. Um, I had kind of severe hypoglycemia. I was in and out of the hospital. Um, uh, I was taking lots of medication and Eventually, I got to a place when I was about 23 years old when I realized that I just didn't, I didn't want to live like that anymore. Um, and, you know, at that point, I had tried to stop chewing food and spitting it out hundreds of times. And I had succeeded for maybe a day, maybe two days, um, maybe even a couple of weeks, uh, but it never lasted. And... I knew at that point that there was a connection between my health problems and um, and chewing food and spitting it out, but I didn't understand what it was. Um, you know, I just I just didn't know. So when I was 23 years old, um, I began my road to recovery, and the beginning of my road to recovery was was pretty crazy. I um I decided to to throw away my medication, which was required for the health problems that I was having, and voluntarily take myself off of health insurance, which is not something that I would recommend for anybody else. But the reason that I did that was I felt like I was done. I felt like I had hit rock bottom, like I would rather die than continue living like that. And like I wanted to figure out how to take a spiritual journey or path to figuring out what it means to be better again. And um, and thus I began my path. And the, I guess the interesting thing about the first couple of years of my path, which weren't, um, weren't a part of, I wasn't a part of OA then, um, was that I knew immediately that I wanted to be of service to other people, that I wanted to figure out what it meant not just to make my life better, but to make other people's lives and the world better. And so I started trying to figure out how to solve other people's problems. Um, and so a really big first part of my own spiritual journey was actually was actually stepping outside of you know some really big things that I needed to deal with, um, and and saying what does it mean you know to help other people um, and. I got to the point where um, where I was starting up these groups that were kind of like OA groups. And um, 
and you know there were men and women who were anorexic and bulimic and overeaters in these groups and um and I was counseling other people on how to get better, and I realized that I was still chewing food and spitting it out every day and you know I realized that you know if I couldn't figure out how to first start with myself, then you know there was no way that I could really help other people and you know, that was the point at which I got introduced to OA. And um, and I got introduced to OA by a girl who was a member of one of these groups that I started um, who was severely bulimic and, um, and who had become my girlfriend at the time. And, um, and I remember going into OA and... and Looking around at people who were anorexic, bulimic, overeaters, um, I went to OA in Los Angeles and thinking to myself that they weren't like me at all. Um, you know, being in my disease for a long time meant um, feeling like I was the only person in the world who chewed food and spit it out. That I had, you know, chosen this really fucked up, nasty, gross, um, and off the wall, I think it even qualifies as eating disorder, not otherwise specified, um, uh, manifestation of this disease. And I remember the first couple times I sat in an OA room and, you know, everybody would say, hi, you know, I'm, I'm whomever and I'm an overeater, a compulsive overeater, and I'm an anorexic, I'm a bulimic. And I thought, I can't identify with any of these people. And I remember very strongly um recognizing that you know today by the way is my second uh, birthday um which is kind of neat it came on came on a nice little day um thank you um <laughs> i remember on the on the day that the first day of i guess these now two years that i've been abstinent um, I remember the big change in thinking on that day, which was probably a year and a half after the first day I set foot in an OA room. And I remember looking around at the room, and it was a room of older people who I once thought that I couldn't relate to. And it was a room of people who all had been or were overweight. And, um, and none of them were anorexic, none of them were bulimic, and sure as heck, none of them had ever chewed food and spit it out. And at one point, I thought I couldn't relate to them either. And I remember feeling so deeply connected to them and so deeply connected to their experience, to their strength and their hope. And and I also remember that being the day and the days and, and the weeks that followed that I was able to really begin my path to recovery. Um, I guess I'll speak a little bit about... Uh, my experience of the 12 steps. Um, steps one and two for me uh, were really, really easy. Um, I knew and had known for a long time that my life was unmanageable. Nobody had to tell me that. That was so clear to me. I was so aware of that. And I was also really willing to acknowledge or see that or you know give my life like willing to see that there's a higher power there in my life that can restore me to sanity 
And um, step three was a real bitch. Um, step three, giving my life and my will over to the care of God as I understand God. Um, step one and two are just, they, they feel very innate in me. And, and um, step three did not. Um, I feel like at all, um, at all places in the road, I've tried to hold on to my will and my life. And um, and interestingly, I felt like in almost all areas of life, besides chewing food and spitting it out, I was pretty damn good at it. And so it was really difficult for me, and it continues to be really difficult for me, to revisit step three on a daily basis and oftentimes many times a day and remember that I am entirely willing to turn my life and my will over to the care of God. <laughs> and... Um, so step three was really, really hard for me. And um, and step four, uh, conceptually, wasn't as hard as step three, but step four took me a year. And the idea of, you know, creating a moral inventory of my life is, um, I actually like that idea. There's There's nothing, you know, there's nothing unseemly about that. In fact, I feel like, and I felt on the first day that I started step four like it was an incredibly cathartic experience and um and I was ready to mow right through it. And what I realized was I didn't know how to take a moral inventory of my life. And I didn't feel like I was allowed to or ready to or knew or could ever finish it. Um and I think that I redid step four like ten times or eleven times. And um and I did it in every way you can possibly do it. And I remember thinking, um remember thinking about a week before I finally decided that I was finished with step four that um that I was never gonna finish step four. <laughs> and um and it was a really interesting experience for me to actually say, okay, it's good enough. Um, and, you know, to recognize that, you know, for the rest of my life I can come back and, and continue doing a moral inventory of my life. Um, but that for now, step four is good enough. Um, and, you know, that experience with, I, I think the topic is, it's never too early or too late. Um, I have that experience with the steps. Um, it's never too early or too late to get to the next step. Um, and, you know, step five, step five was nice and kind of a sigh of relief <laughs> after step four. And step six and seven, like step three, are steps that I have to revisit all the time. Um, so I think about my life now. Um, so my life now is, is in recovery, um, is really special to me. Um, three years after I threw away all my medication and, you know, um, decided to take that weird kind of spiritual journey that I didn't know at the time, but, but a year later would include OA and, and the 12 steps. I remember walking back into a doctor's office and being undiagnosed with all of the things that, um, all of the maladies that I had experienced for the last many, many years. Um, and realizing that miracles were happening in my life. Um, 
And um, that was the first time my sponsor has told me that I, I don't get to choose what miracles happen in my life. I just get to choose whether or not I, I recognize them. And I think that that was the first time that, um, that I realized that miracles were happening in my life. And, you know, I think about my life right now, at least, in broad categories, um, and what OA has, has done for me in each of those broad categories, um, and what recovery has done for me. And I think about my family, for instance. I left my house when I was 14 years old, and I left my house without any relationship, really, with anyone in my family including my brothers and sisters and my mother and father. And I now have very deep, loving relationships with everyone in my family. Um, that doesn't mean that I haven't had um, lots of growing to do myself, as I've thought about um, uh, and engaged you know, family neuroses, which there are lots of them, um, and understood and seen them within me. It just means that um, I have been lucky enough to see the the like beauty and you know wonderful qualities of all of these people that I couldn't recognize those qualities in them beforehand. But recovery has given me that gift. Um, I think about my work. Uh, I've been lucky enough to have always done basically things that other people would call their dreams. I literally have been so lucky as to be able to close my eyes and think of something and then be able to do it for work. Um, but I never enjoyed it, ever. In fact, I hated work. Um, I hated the work that I loved for a long, long time, and I couldn't do a very good job at it. And, um, and you know, I probably got two or three good hours of work in, um, in you know, at a time, <laughs> in a day. And today, work is a really loving and wonderful experience, and I have to wrap up in like 30 seconds or something. But And uh, and every day I come to work and I'm able to be present with it. Um, it's not too late or too early to be there. Um, you know, I am exactly where I need to be at work, and it's really wonderful. And it doesn't mean it's not hard and help, um, because oftentimes it's both of those things. Um, and I guess really, lastly, I think about my relationships. You know, there's always going to be craziness in relationships, um, just in general. Uh, but, you know, if we're learning and growing and staying present with ourselves um, and staying and keeping our program kind of within ourselves, um, you know, there's a real opportunity to find a lot of wonderful stuff. So anyway, thank you so much for letting me talk. Thank you so much, both of you, and congratulations, Ben. Um, the speakers will now draw questions from the Ask It basket for the remainder of the meeting. Um, do you want to read the questions, or do you want me to read the questions and you to answer? You can think instead of read. <laughs> All right. Um, first question, have you relapsed before? And if so, what did you do to become better? Both of you. 
I don't know, could you all hear him or do you wanna use the mic or something? I don't think they do. I was in OA for about a year before uh, before I stayed abstinent, and during that year, I probably relapsed um, 30 times. Uh, I was intent on getting better at that time, and um, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back to what the experience was in relapse. I guess um, in recovery and in life, I am ready to do things much, much faster than God is ready for them. And one of the things that I had to learn, and a big lesson that I had to learn as I went through relapse, was to remember that when the intention is there, action will follow, but sometimes it takes time. And, um, And to remember that it's not my time, and it's not chronological time. It's God's time, and um, and you know that continues to be a big learning experience and something that I've taken with me to um, a lot of other areas of my life. Yeah, this is a tough one um, <clears throat> because. There's been a lot of times in recovery where I know that, you know, things are getting a little uh, squirrely. And um, there's many times when I have felt like I want things to be back on track. And yet, again, that disease aspect is like you want it so bad, right? But obviously... Like I can't, I can't do this on my own because <laughs> I would have done it a long time ago. Um, I would have fixed this a long time ago because that's what I want, right? Um, and yet I'm having so much difficulty. Um, you know, in terms of of relapse, I, you know, I've I've slipped for sure. I think relapse is always kind of like a touchy subject because um, there's different ideas of that. And when I created uh, my food plan and my baseline absence which was um, no binging, there is definitely like a talk in place where you talk about where that boundary line is um, in terms of what is, you know, a binge and what is like truly overeating. Um, I have had slips. Um, I don't think that I've ever broken uh, my abstinence um, in terms of like I'm in relapse, but I definitely have had situations where I haven't been able to do things perfectly. And I think that that's just life, um, and I'm not going to be able to have every single amount of food exactly in the perfect proportions on my plate um, and be able to follow that for, you know, the rest of my life. All I can do is do the best I can. Um, and I've been able to do fairly fairly well with that in the big picture. Um, the times when I have had trouble what has helped me get back on track. Um, You know, I just start to work the program really hard, and I think that I pray for the willingness every single night because there are definitely times when I want it. I want things to be cleaner, um, you know, maybe like they were before, but it's just not coming. 
Um, and kind of like what Sam said, it, you know, sometimes I have to let things take take their course. You know, some of the most painful experiences in program have ended up being the most profoundly healing for me. Um, but I had to go through feeling that pain. Um, but there's definitely, obviously, tools out there. So I, I worked in the rough patches. I definitely started to um, get serious about um, the fact that I am a compulsive overeater again, yet again, realize that, and then just start to work program and pray for the willingness every night. And, you know, it came. So, so. What is your earliest memory of feeling out of control with food? I, the first thing that um, I thought about was is not really an answer to that question, but a similar question. Um, my earliest memory of being dissatisfied with my body, which was a big driver, I think, um, in between seasons when it really didn't matter how much I weighed anymore, uh, was when I was in eighth grade. I, I remember very vividly sitting uh, in English class and I pinched the fat on my stomach, and I realized that I could pinch an inch of fat. And to me, that was so fucking disgusting. And um, and I didn't know where that came from at the time. Uh, you know, I, I do now. I, uh, I, I know that I grew up in a household where uh, I was a little bit chubby, not much, and I was called a little anorexic boy almost my entire <laughs> childhood. Um so that was the first time I, the first time I remember um, being out of control with the way that I think about my body, and the first time that I remember being out of control with food um, was, I and I, I already talked a little bit about it, so I can keep this pretty short. Was um, was when I was starving and really dehydrated, and something that I had done to myself. Um, and all I wanted was to eat everything in the world and drink thousands and thousands of gallons of water. And that really sets you up for disaster pretty quickly. And um, and my first out-of-control experience was actually very much kind of restricting and being in control. Put water in my mouth, spit it out. Put chocolate in my mouth, spit it out. But the thing is, is when you're doing that, there's no real end. Um, so if the idea is to have water in your mouth for so that you can feel hydrated or to have food in your mouth so you can feel like you're eating something nutritious, you've got to keep putting food in your mouth for a long, long time because you stay hungry and you stay dehydrated. Um, and so that created a tremendous amount of out-of-control afterwards. You know, I don't, um, I don't know if I could say that I honestly remember an early age being out of control with food. I, I have heard stories from my mom about being at parties, and um, she would see me um, alone, not with the other kids, and eating something off of every plate on the buffet table. And her, I, and her, 
when she expressed that to me, um, when she had noticed that, she was saying that she that was the first indication she felt like there was something a little different going on and maybe there was a problem there. Um, I don't remember that. I don't remember any super early um, experiences. And, you know, I have to say, honestly, too, I, I think that f- for the most part I, I was pretty – I think I was so kind of just numbed out and just kind of not really just wanting to do what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it and and not really being prepared to deal with thoughts of whether or not what I was doing was normal or whether I should get help. And I think that it was probably closer to maybe early middle school um, that I genuinely started to feel as though there's something different and wrong with what I'm doing. And a lot of what I was doing then in terms of out-of-control behavior, um, you know, was was realizing that, you know, there was this really um, strong craving to continue to eat food in massive amounts um, with no boundaries. Um, and why, you know, while the rest of the people that were around me eating that same thing had a, a pretty clear, noticeable boundary line in terms of like, mm, I'm full or <laughs> um, I've had enough, that did not really, I wasn't used to experiencing that. I wasn't used to experiencing when people said, oh, this, this chocolate is just so rich. Um, I didn't understand what they were talking about. Um, and, you know, I think also when I wouldn't really eat at school too much, but then when I got home in the afternoon from school, having that be like it's love affair time with the food, like I'm going to go crazy right now. Um, um, and even more so when I started to realize that I really, really got irritated when my own family and friends would interrupt um, any kind of, you know, my plans with the food. So those things, you know, they came later, I think, in terms of really realizing um, them being kind of out of control behaviors. But, you know, they came and um, I experienced the pain and that's what brought me here. Um, So that's all. This is an interesting one. Uh, when friends ask why you never want to go out late or party at night, what is a good response? And the question would be, how do you handle alcohol and drinking, or potentially not drinking? I like that one a lot. <laughs> um One of the things that I noticed when I was uh, that I've noticed through my through my life through through my childhood, uh, my teenage years, and and my young adulthood um, is that is that I tend to isolate myself more than other people, even outside of even in recovery. I tend to isolate myself more than other people, um, and I've noticed that. I don't quite know how to conduct myself oftentimes um, with other people in situations that feel uh, foreign to me uh, or feel different to me. Um, 
And I've also realized that the most important thing for me, in, in, as far as staying sane is concerned, is moderation uh, for almost everything. Um, I've never had a problem with alcohol. It's just not my problem. Um, it's not my disease. Um, but with that said, you will very, very, very rarely, if ever, see me drink more than two glasses of alcohol. Um, and one thing that I found, as particularly after moving to San Francisco, and um, you know, having job responsibilities that on five nights or six nights a week include going out with people who um, inevitably want to drink a lot, uh, is that I have really had to ground in myself um, and remember that it is okay to be me. And um, in the same way that it's okay for somebody else to want to have six or seven glasses of wine during dinner or um, you know, going out after dinner, it's okay for me to have a glass of wine. And, um, and when I have that strength inside myself, I found that it's always respected. Um, when I don't have that strength inside myself, I found that peer pressure kind of continues. When I'm like, ah, I don't know, you know, then it's time for things to... And I also have found that whereas with a lot of young adults, um, they uh, really enjoy um, going out to clubs until two or three, I don't, I haven't ever really. And, um, and you know, I just had to be honest with myself about that. And, you know, there was a time when I wasn't honest with myself and I would just go because everybody else was going. But I didn't really like it. I even told myself that I should like it, but I didn't. And I feel lucky enough to usually, not always, feel um, uh, you know, good enough about myself to say, hey, you know, don't want to do it. And, you know, I think it's that third chakra strength that I have spent a lot of time with um, and has helped me kind of to make good decisions uh, for me. Yeah, my answer is going to be similar to his in a sense that, um, you know, there's going to be, I'm fortunate enough to have a group of friends that is very close. They all know about OA. They all know that I'm here right now, and they all sent me a text saying, good luck. <laughs> um, so in that sense, you know, I don't, and th that's my main group of friends. Those are the friends that I hang out with the most. Um, I don't I don't have any issues. They they are all extremely supportive, um, and I make decisions like that all the time. You know, I'm going to pass on this or, um, you know, like that Denny's trip at, like, you know, 3 in the morning. Um, but I have to say that I'm I'm also the kind of person that actually really likes to go and dance all night until 3 a.m., and, and, and that's, that's okay for me. I've experienced it... Um, and it doesn't mean that I'm binge drinking. It doesn't mean that, it just means that, you know, me staying up doesn't mean that I'm eating. It doesn't mean that I'm going out with them to that place. Um, many times I separate myself when there's a situation where they're going to Denny's. Or at this point in recovery, I can sit with them and be fine while they're eating. Not everyone um, 
that that stage, or they're not, or maybe just that they're not gonna be comfortable with it, and that's totally fine. Um, but my experience has been that, and similar to what Dan was saying too, ultimately there's gonna be uncomfortable moments because there's plenty of moments when I'm not with my close friends, and there are situations that come up with food, and people are like, oh, why aren't, why aren't you, you know, like why why are you not eating dessert with everybody else, and you know, you can do so many things. You can try to, like, figure out different formulas to make it easier, um, which is which is okay, too. Um, especially, I think I did a lot of that in the beginning when I was more uncomfortable. But what I found is that there's just going to be uncomfortable moments, and you just got to get really, like, secure and confident with yourself in your own recovery and be able to say um, – because it really is, my experience has been as well, that for the most part, if it's somebody that's worth being with and being your friend and being around, they're going to respect it. And if they're not respecting it, then it's it's probably not really super good com- company. Um, and the more confident you are in your stance and in your life, I mean, people people read, pick up on that and they read that and they just fall right along with you. I mean, it's it's rarely, I think, a situation where I ever find someone that has a problem with something that I'm doing with food, unless they have a problem with food themselves. <laughs> um, but, and I just I just say that to joke, but um, but really, it's it's just about getting confident in your own place, and and that takes time, and it takes going through uncomfortable experiences, and and you know, just learning that, you know, if you just if you just kind of stick your ground, then um, you just get comfortable with that part of your life, then, you know, people's respect will follow and it'll, it'll be fine. So, um, that's all. Um, did you come into the program as a teen? Uh, if so, did you um, go to meetings specifically for young people and were they any different from ones for adults, such as format, feel to it, et cetera? And I think the, um, that OA defines young people as 18 to 23, or is it 25? Um, so you can moderate the question until that, if you weren't in your teens. Just a suggestion for me. I came into OA when I was um, 25, and um, maybe I was 24. I was 24, and uh, in Los Angeles, there were a lot of young people. Um, in Los Angeles, they define young people as young at heart, by the way, and so at lots of young young people's meetings, there were lots of old people too. Um, and uh, in in the Bay Area, there were not. Um, in fact, in most of the meetings that I went to in Palo Alto, uh, there were there were no young people, and um, I wish that, that I had known. Maybe there was, maybe there wasn't. But I wish that when I was a teen, I had known about OA, and I wish that um, it would be neat if um, if if I could have had that experience. And I remember about a year ago, I tried. Restarting um, restarting a young person's meeting at Stanford, uh, which they used to have, um, and it was a very well attended meeting, 
and there was so much bureaucracy in trying to get that thing restarted. Um, but I would love to work with other people to get more young people's meetings because I think that OA is a great asset. Um, and, um, and you know, I think that we have the opportunity to share a lot of experience, strength, and hope with people who could use that sharing. Sorry, I have to ask in what the second part of that question was, or if there was a second part to that. Um, I came in 24 as well, I think. And, well, I was exposed to it, I think, between tw- the age of 20 and 22, but I, w- I was not ready to take it in. Um, I, I, went to, I went for probably like a week or so, um, and then I didn't come back. And then I came back for a good when I was, I think, 24. Um, I have been to one meeting in particular that is really the only one that I was familiar with or ever have been familiar with um, in the Silicon um, Valley area, which also goes by the name of Young at Heart now. Um, and so I did actually go to that quite a bit in the very beginning. And in terms of the difference between the meetings, um, I think the most obvious one was that there was more variety in terms of um, different kinds of forms that the disease takes. So there were more um, people with bulimia and anorexia um, because unfortunately that's more common within younger ages. Um, And interestingly enough, I think that there was also, there was more focus on the body image aspect. of the disease too, which goes, I think, hand in hand with that. Um, but that's, you know, in general though, there were, there were plenty of people that were older that were coming to those meetings. There was no kind of, I mean, in my experience has been there's never been any kind of like separation um, between older people and younger people in terms of meetings and things like that. And so there wasn't any specific um, separation. I, I feel like the majority of all meetings that I've been to, um, where there's been younger people and older people, it's been generally um, the same kind of vibe. Um, but I do, I do also think that it's, there should be way more meetings for younger people. It's um, It's unfortunate that a lot of times um, when people are getting, younger people are getting treated for eating disorders of various kinds, um, it's a very immediate, intensive amount of recovery, and there's no place to go to afterwards um, for more extended or there's less resources. Um, But we're working on it. (laughs) How do you deal with relationships? I'm assuming 
uh, well, I'll take it from the broad perspective of all relationships. I don't know if that was supposed to be romantic or if that was supposed to be just all relationships. Um, you know, when I think, I, I kind of like, I walked up here first, right? But then um, now I'm a little overwhelmed with the question because it's a tough one. Um, <laughs> it's, I think that relationships is, is they are so hard because so much of how my disease manifests itself in my daily life is through my relationships and my ability to handle them. Um, because that's where my feelings are is, is my interaction with people, um, the day-to-day stuff. Um, and it's really hard stuff. And um, the way that I deal with my relationships is one day at a time. And um, taking each situation and trying to take the next right action um, and really work on trying to get to a level of understanding with other people um, where you know I used to I used to think I've spent most of my early life and still do now sometimes comparing my insides to other people's outsides and that might seem off topic but I say that because I think that there's like this this idea in me that I am separate and that somehow I am so different than all of you and that you just don't get it and like I'm alone over here experiencing this thing and no one cares or understands and um, that's been a way for me to help um, isolate and to help kind of grow that sense of um, I'm just going to go deal with it myself which has not been very successful in the past Um, and so I think that the more that I realize that we're all so much more on the same page than we realize um, I think was kind of like step one and you know beyond that you know I don't think there's any kind of formula specifically I think it's just taking the tools and the, the way that we work all the steps and really applying it to every aspect of your life you know trying to have humility and be honest and do the best you can. Um, I still fight with people, but I, I just try to do my best to um, make amends and uh, not act out out of fear, stress, feeling like I won't be accepted by you or loved. Um, and, you know, when I can put that aside, um, then I'm able to, to respond to people much easier. I don't even know if that's an answer to the question, but I'm going to say that. I think that in order for me to really connect with all of the people in, in a way, um, I had to recognize that my manifestation of the disease may look a little bit different from everyone else's, but we're still kind of at a core dealing with the same thing. And um, and generally speaking, I think about that a little bit more broadly in life 
and I was able to really see it in my family. Um, I had a brother and sister who who went through the same childhood that I did, and um, and my brother tried to drink himself to death numerous times, and um, and drug himself to death for that matter. And my sister was a um, was a cutter, and she still wears long sleeves and long um, you know pants because she has like thousands of cuts all over her body. And I remember a couple of times when she was rushed to the hospital. And I think that we, in my, my own family, we, we all found ways to hurt ourselves really badly. And, um, and when I think about my disease, I think of my disease as a way that I found to hurt myself really badly. And in recovery, I've had the opportunity to look deep inside that and start addressing, for instance, some character defects. And, um, you know, when I look at my relation, through looking at my relationship with my food and through working the steps, I think about, um, you know, character defects like big-time ego and learning to find humility and perfectionism and learning to be okay with, you know, progress and not perfection and so on and so forth. And my experience of relationships in recovery is that every time I look at a person, I'm actually looking at a reflection in myself. So when I see a person and I go, damn, she has big-time ego, I have to stop myself and recognize and see it myself. And every time I look at somebody and I don't stop myself, um, I realize that what I'm doing is I'm rejecting the fact that she has a lot of ego. And somebody once told me that if you reject something, you will be virtually assured that it will come back to you over and over again until you decide to deal with it. And um, so it is with my relationships. Um, when I reject the character defects that I perceive in other people, I realize that that's something I need to deal with. And as I have rejected less and less, I've found more and more love in all of my relationships. It is now time to close the meeting. Let's thank our speakers and all who have done service. And please stand and join hands as we close with the OA promises.